Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Sean Barry, a partner at Lyft Economy, and my guest today is Nikishka Iyengar. Nikishka is the founder and chief ecosystem officer at the Guild, focusing on building community wealth and power through cooperative models of real estate and entrepreneurship. She has over a decade of experience in building the solidarity economy as a consultant, entrepreneur, writer, and organizer. She uses a systems thinking and emergent strategy approach across her work in finance, racial justice, equitable development, and climate action. She is a co-host and producer of the podcast Road to Repair. As a mother to a toddler and an infant, spare time is a foreign concept to Nikishka. But she is passionate about weaving the same questions around our collective liberation that she applies to her work in parenting. Welcome, Nikishka. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. And love to start off by hearing about your life story and how, how did you first get interested in the work that you're doing today? Yeah, so I was born and raised in in Mumbai in India, and I moved to the U.S. for college. And when I first came here, I got very involved in student organizing on campus, everything from you know climate organizing to anti poverty campaigns and stuff like that. And then when I graduated from school, I needed a visa to stay in the country, and ended up working at Deloitte Consulting, because it was only like consulting and banking (laughs) that were issuing visas. But at Deloitte, I had the opportunity to help build out our sustainability and social impact practice and got like the inside view into how, I guess, like capitalism (laughs) deals with issues of social impact. And I was both excited to have the opportunity to work on this kind of stuff, but also was a huge learning experience for me in terms of what really moves the needle when it comes to solving some of our biggest challenges today. And I forgot to mention one of the big sort of like influential points for me in college was also living and working in a student housing cooperative. And so that thread kind of weaves into some of the work I'm doing today. But anyway, that was like a really sort of like, yeah, monumental transformative experience for me as a as a young student. And then fast forward several years later, moved to Atlanta, was still working at Deloitte. I really wanted to sort of explore social entrepreneurship outside of, you know, the big corporate social impact work. And I was getting ready to to buy a house here in Atlanta and was like, okay, what if I take this interest I have around social entrepreneurship and this experience I've had sort of living and working in a student cooperative and try to create some version of like a cooperative for social entrepreneurs. And so it was really just a way for me to build community too in Atlanta. I had just moved not too long ago before I started the guild and ended up creating like Atlanta's first, I guess, residential, what was then an incubator program. So we brought together social entrepreneurs, not profit, you know, leaders, organizers, artists, small business owners in like this live work environment, then had a program that was designed to support 
their ventures and designed to support them as just leaders. And the idea and the thesis was like, these were the people that were doing the most important work in their neighborhoods, for the city, for our communities. And what could it look like for them to have sort of like a holistic support system? And this was like 2014, 2015. And so there wasn't really any, we had a lot of like tech accelerator programs in Atlanta then. There wasn't really anything that was like targeting social entrepreneurs necessarily. And so the program ended up being, there was a lot of demand for it. It was successful in its first iteration, but we only had the, you know, the one house. I was looking, as demand increased, I was looking at expanding and partnering with sort of what I was seeking was like a mission-aligned developer that could help us expand this program and move out of my like personal house, but like professionalize it a little bit more and just, yeah, expands, you know, space and capacity wise. And so we were looking at, you know, nonprofit developers, just social impact real estate developers and launched a couple of projects in partnership with them. And just through that experience, I, I learned about how real estate development works and how one, like, I think people don't, not everyone seems to like, just get a grasp on how much of an invisible hand (laughs) real estate as an industry has been in our cities and our communities in terms of like, every major social inequity you can think of, right? Like, starting with the affordable housing crisis, but also thinking about food apartheid in our communities, thinking about the defunding of our public school systems, thinking about policing, like all of these things have real estate and the interest of the real estate industry really at the heart of it, but has been sort of this like invisible force moving the chess pieces across the board kind of thing. And I think through this process of developing real estate in partnership with developers and realizing that even if they were mission aligned, the sort of capital that was coming into the projects and then the ownership structure of the projects themselves being sort of like very investor driven, right? And very much at market rate terms was a realization that like, unless those two things, unless capital and ownership structures change, we're going to see the very same outcomes, no matter what kind of branding or spin you put on it. And as we expanded at the Guild too, we were on the on the receiving end of increased like lease amounts and stuff like that and found ourselves just not being able to carry on operations unless we were able to like buy some real estate and develop it ourselves. And so along that journey, we went on just sort of like a learning exercise and looked at the landscape of everything that could be an alternative to the status quo in development. So we looked at things like land trusts, we looked at things that like limited equity cooperatives, community investment trusts, all of it, right? And had started working on sort of putting together a pilot project of an alternative community-owned real estate model for Atlanta. And this was like 2018, 2019. It, you know, it didn't really pick up steam. We were looking for funding. It didn't really go very far and in the sense that we weren't able to like raise the capital for it. And then 2020 hit, the pandemic hit. And I had put out this this op-ed that was really a call to action for philanthropy to say, hey, we just hit this pandemic. We know thanks to disaster capitalism, like what's on the other side, because we've been here before. After the 2008 financial crisis, for example, like we saw how predatory investment capital, private equity, just sort of like swooped in and bought up whether it was foreclosed homes or just land in our cities. And a lot of actually what we were seeing just, you know, prior to 
when the pandemic hit was really like the after effects of the 2008 crisis, right? And so anyway, put out this call to action to philanthropy to say, hey, like, we know what's coming, let's get prepared. Philanthropy should really be putting some first in capital into supporting communities that are trying to do development differently, communities and organizations that are fighting for housing justice, that are fighting for like eviction moratoriums and prevention, things like that. And so thanks to that call to action, we had a funder, a local funder here in Atlanta step up and give us a grant to purchase our pilot project. And so our pilot project, that's a community-owned mixed-use space. It's in the in a neighborhood called Capitol View in Atlanta. And Capitol View has been like a historically Black neighborhood that has been gentrifying. And we purchased a vacant, abandoned, as it exists, a commercial space at a very busy intersection of the neighborhood and are developing that to put two stories of affordable housing on top, permanently affordable housing, as a housing cooperative up top. And then the commercial space will be a grocery store, three small commercial kitchens for Black-owned food businesses, and some meeting event space for community-based organizations. And like how we developed the program for this space was also through a co-design process with the community. And once construction's complete, the property moves into an ownership structure called the Community Stewardship Trust, where anybody in the neighborhood and zip code really will get to purchase shares for as little as $10 and will get to vote on everything that happens in the property and any other properties that the trust sort of takes on. And they will now get a financial benefit if the property has a surplus that it generates, right? So as opposed to that wealth sort of leaving the neighborhood, which is very typical in real estate development where wealth sort of gets extracted out of the neighborhood in this situation, it's retained within the community investors. And so like surplus gets redistributed back as dividends to them. And then the property valuation is tied to their share price. And so because we're in a gentrifying neighborhood, if property values do go up, as opposed to it sort of just being like a, a negative thing, they're share price increases as well. And so we're working with, we're really trying to center legacy Black residents, low wealth, low income residents, folks that are you know poor and working class in how we develop this, which is why there's been a lot of intentionality that's gone into how we design the, the ownership structure and the shares and trying to make it accessible for folks that are otherwise left out of investment opportunities like this. So yeah, that's where we're at. And our as we did this, we have two other pilots now in the works. I don't want to go too far along in this, but I'll share that we have two other pilots in the works. And what we've realized is there's a need to actually assemble some kind of fund or just capital that is ready to take on projects like this. So we're not having to do this work sort of like deal by deal, right? Because this first project, for example, that I just shared, it's $11 million project. And imagine having to do projects at that scale. There's That scale is like 18 housing units with commercial space. And it's it's just hard to raise money deal by deal. And so as we've launched two other pilots, we realize there's a need to actually think about an integrated capital fund that can support scaling up this work of community ownership. That way, when properties do come on the market, we're able to act quickly and sort of take it off the speculative market and and buy communities the time it takes to do this work intentionally. Because I think where we kind of sit as the guild and our fund that's called Ground Cover is sort of being this this bridge between the like hyper extractive fast paced 
boom and, and crash in this real estate pacing. <laughs> and then the like pacing that is natural and necessary for communities to organize and and build around collective action. And so we sit in that in that middle space and play the sort of like dual capacity building role, organizer role, and really like developer role. So that's yeah, that's our work right now. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And I'm struck by how, you know, it all started not from exactly what you were studying, but how you were meeting your housing needs while you were a student. And I will say, though, like people ask me because I used to work in, in the climate space, right? Like I was doing like corporate sustainability CSR work and people are like, so how come you left climate work? Because that was a lot of what I was doing. We were doing like, you know, developing like renewable energy models for companies to put into place. But anyway, and when I get asked that question from like ex-colleagues and stuff like that, for me, it's not a departure from that work. Actually, if you think about whether it's the housing crisis or just other sort of like economic inequities that, that exist, and then you look at the climate crisis, like they're two sides of the same coin. And I'm sure I'm like preaching to the choir when it comes to the listeners of this podcast, but it's really like capitalism at the heart of it, right? And specifically, like, in the way that we think about the work at the Gill, like private ownership of land has been at the heart of also like the climate crisis. And so as we think about alternative economic paradigms and sort of like building the solidarity economy, that's also in service to, to climate action and climate justice. And so it doesn't feel like a departure from what I was doing right out of school. It actually feels like pulling back the layers and trying to get to the root causes in some ways. Yeah, and that's that's what I see, right? And this idea of the co-op being kind of outside of your college curriculum, but then your realization being so profound. And I feel like that's kind of the the state of, of modern capitalism is it's it's such such an oppressive overstructure <laughs> that you really have to step back and say, wait a minute, I'm a human and I live somewhere on the earth and what's my relationship to the earth and start starting from there. So that's that's beautiful the way that, that that's progressed. I'm curious, wow, a bunch of stuff. Maybe just more about like the current state of your project. Like it's in construction now. When does it open? I'm curious about like the the tenants, the, the, the community investors. What stage are we at in terms of how many people involved and what levels and et cetera? Yeah. So the last couple years since we acquired the project has been in the co-design phase and sort of actually working through like permitting and assembling the financial, like the capital stack, all of that stuff. We're actually breaking ground next month. <laughs> so we're finally, wow. finally getting ready for construction. It has been a hurdle just also in terms of, as you can imagine, like just building in the pandemic when construction prices sort of like went up and then we were in a favorable interest rate environment when we started and then everything kind of changed towards the end of last year right and so anyway we've been like sort of grappling with with all of that and working in partnership with our lender trying to get to the finish line and i'll say like a lot of our work along the way has been just capital organizing like beyond philanthropy we're working with a cdfi and we've been sort of very in our partnership have been sort of pushing them to think about underwriting a little bit differently too, because a lot of times CDFIs that are supposed to fill this capital gap or end up replicating the same sort of 
underwriting and uh, criteria and terms as banks and aren't really meeting the needs of our community. So anyway, that's been the bulk of our work in the last couple of years. But now we're finally, like I said, getting ready to break ground and then go on this while construction is happening over the next year. We're going to be doing sort of various pieces of the, the community, like governance design, putting together the bylaws. We've been creating the investor curriculum, essentially like all of the community investors that are in the zip code that want to sign up. Like a lot, we've had a lot of folks sort of already like fill up our interest forms and stuff like that. But now we're moving them along into, hey, if you're interested in signing up to be a community investor in our stewardship trust, like we, not to make it like overly burdensome, but we do want that to take them through a set of curriculum, both that covers some personal finance modules in there through like a trauma-based lens, right? And a trauma-informed lens, because we recognize that as we're working with the communities that have been sort of like extracted from and, and ravaged through through various predatory systems, we have to keep that sort of like trauma and cultural sensitivity in mind. And so we've been designing a curriculum that's with that at the heart of it. So it covers some personal finance stuff. It covers just sort of like broad strokes of like how real estate development works and like how do you look at a pro forma not not super technical but like with the understanding that like if they're going to make decisions around the financials of the properties and the trust and things like that they you know just small things to to support them with with making good decisions around property management and development management overall. So that's the kind of curriculum that they'll be taking this fall. And then once construction is complete is when our offering memorandum goes live for them to essentially purchase shares. And that has been its own thing that we've been working over the past couple of years. As you know, Sean, there's obviously rules and regulations around working with not what the, what the government and the SEC calls non-accredited investors. Right. And those rules are obviously in place for a reason, but oftentimes like they're in place to sort of prevent, I guess, you know, like scams or low wealth and low income community in- investors from getting, you know, a bad deal or getting taken on a ride. But on the flip side, it also ends up like gatekeeping a lot of investment opportunities. And so anyway, we've been designing the offering memorandum with looking through to see like which SEC, you know, exemption works best for what we're trying to solve for. And so that has been a lot of the legal design work has been happening over the last year as well. And we have a path forward. And then we're also assembling like the board of the first governance board for the CST. And a lot of that's coming from like deep partnerships that we've been building in the zip code over the past couple years. So other community-based organizations that have been doing, you know, deep neighborhood level work in the neighborhoods in the same zip code, helping inform the bylaws and other things around the stewardship trust. One sort of very important tenet of the stewardship trust is that we will be sort of taking properties off the speculative market entirely. So there's a clause in there that says, you know, the property can't be sold on the open market. And anyway, so that's part of the work that's happening now. I will say there's been like, I I think I hinted at this, but there's two other pilot projects that have been in the works. The most recent one, we're just under contract as of this week. It's It's a residential scale land trust that we're incubating in partnership with Housing Justice League, our local tenant rights and housing justice organization. They came out of the Occupy movement and the Occupy Homes movement specifically. 
And they've been on the front lines the past few years, right? Like fighting evictions and things like that. Even when the moratorium went in, like there's been an influx post the moratorium's being lifted and they've been really supporting tenants with organizing against their landlords, supporting things like tenant unions and stuff like that. And so we've we've built a partnership with them now that I'm really excited about that allows us to incubate a residential land trust that members of their base that are you know, facing eviction because they've gotten organized, right? Landlords don't like to see that. And we do have a couple folks that have gone through the eviction process, unfortunately, because their landlord, yeah, just didn't like to see them organized. And so now we're supporting those folks with sort of permanently affordable housing through the land trust. So we're really excited about that partnership. And then there's another partnership with with an organization called Community Movement Builders, where we're doing another sort of community-owned project within the same zip code as our stewardship trust. That's in a very similar size and scale. So about 15,000 square feet of commercial plus housing units, about 12 to 14 housing units is where the, the plans are right now. So yeah, that's that's where we are in terms of both the first pilot as well as the, the next two. That's great. So it'll be open in 2024? 2024, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fingers crossed that everything goes okay with, <laughs> with construction. But yes, that's the... That's what we're tracking to now. I really want to celebrate too the way you're making the investment open, right, to people who live there and especially creating some some training around that. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, but you know, one of the things that we that we believe is that you know, humans are actually really intelligent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're fully capable of, you know, managing their own household budget, totally. etc. And it's not a huge jump to, you know, managing the budget for a shared project, even if real estate's involved, right? So yeah, just yeah. glad that you're you're doing that and and but also like you're pairing it with a curriculum rather than just, hey, it's just open for everybody, mm-hmm. whatever. It's like, no, it's open and here's some basics that we can all get on the same page. And I'll say and like what we're, we're doing together. Totally. And our like even on the personal finance side of things, like we're trying to have a lens of almost like political education in there. Cause it's not that To your point, right? Like we firmly believe that people actually can and are experts at managing their own (laughs) money and lives. And it's just that they've not had the same sort of opportunities or income levels to even make these kinds of investments in the past. And so that's why it's not a lack of like sort of, yeah, capability, but more so some of the education we're including in there. When I say political education, I mean like the ways in which like we're not trying to replicate sort of like capitalist investment vehicles, right? So we're our projects are really trying to balance a few different tensions. We're trying to offer some financial benefit to folks that have been left out of accruing any kind of financial benefit from development in their own neighborhood. So like there is that element of it, but we're looking at a at it through a community wealth building lens. And so this is not about maximizing individual wealth, right? Because there's there's housing in most of our projects, if not all right now. And so we're balancing like we want the housing to be affordable in perpetuity, right? And of course, like affordable is like a broad term. And it's like, usually you have to clarify like, who is it affordable to and at what targets at AMI levels, but we want it to be affordable in the long run. And so automatically that means like not maximizing, you know, the dollar per square foot that the property can get. And then even if that wealth is going back to community investors, it's still not serving our mission if folks are going to be displaced on the other side of it, right? And so 
some of the education we're having to do, like we've got some of these questions, for example, in our design process too, where, you know, folks were like, oh, you need to, like one of the things we're doing, for example, is like backstopping um, some of the shares so that people that are truly of a certain income level don't end up losing any of their investment. It was really important for us to get philanthropy to step in and create a reserve that if folks needed to cash out for any reason, or if folks needed to just, yeah, like pull pull out their money before they were ready, they would never lose what they've put in. It was important for us to do that. And, and through our co-design processes, it came out that like some of the neighbors were like, well, if you're doing that, you're not really setting up folks to then go and invest in Wall Street. Like you're you're creating a false sense of security for them. And we were like, well, the goal here is not to make you a trained like Wall Street investor. Our goal here is to create some sort of like reparative structures <laughs> to transfer the value and wealth from development that happens in the neighborhoods to the people that live there, steward the asset, et cetera. So it's a fundamentally different sort of, yeah, what we're trying to achieve is is fundamentally different. And it's not a stepping stone to then going and investing in like extractive investments. So that's been a bit of a, it's been interesting to see like who has those types of questions. And it's, you know, I don't, I don't fault people at all for thinking that way, but capitalism has sort of like ingrained itself in in everybody in, in every way. Right. So that's some of the things we have to incorporate and, and course correct from. Yeah. And thanks for, for lifting that up. So, you know, you have a clause the community stewardship trust, you're not going to be flipping properties, mm-hmm. right? So you're not going to hold on to it for five years until that zip code comes up in value and then exit mm-hmm. and, you know, sell it for twice the price, right? So we're not doing that. So then what's the yield, right? What's the benefit to investors? Yeah, I mean, they do get, like I said, the surplus from dividends. So like, you know, net operating income minus expenses of the property. And right now it's just one property in the in the trust, right? But as we've got these other pilots underway and then we're building out ground cover the fund, like the idea is more properties sort of move into the stewardship trust. And I'll say like the financial benefit is one piece of it, but primarily it's also about like stabilizing communities and making sure that assets within the communities get to meet the needs of the community. So for example, the community might not need another brewery or another coffee shop, but it might need like a grocery store. It might need a daycare. It might need things like that. So now the benefit here is that people also get to like inform what happens in their neighborhoods and meet their own needs through through the assets that end up in the stewardship trust with some small financial benefit. And I should also clarify, like a lot of this is still, we have one pilot that's sort of thought through, but there's There's so much more learning from this that as we learn lessons from the implementation of this first one, we're going to incorporate it across the board. These models are emergent across the country. And I think folks in different cities are some, a lot of the people that y'all have interviewed on the, on this podcast, right? Everyone is sort of like experimenting with different models that meets their community's needs and meets the mission that they're trying to incorporate. And I think we're in this phase where like there's almost like a national, movement emerging around this work with differences based on geography and other things. And I think the next few years will be really telling in terms of like what the next phase and iteration of our stewardship trust is even going to look like. Because I could sit here and say, yeah, we're going to offer, you know, X percent yield on all of this. And it's like, there's no way to know that definitively. It's, it's still... Yeah, we're going to find out. There is precedent, I will say, for it. 
that a lot of our work comes from the community investment trust model that they did in Portland. I don't know if you've interviewed folks from Portland on this podcast, the Mercy Corps CIT. And so there's some precedent there and there's like a rate of return that they were able to sort of meet. And so we're holding that as a guide, but they didn't have housing, for example, in their model. So we recognize that maybe our, you know, we won't have like an 8% rate of return, but we might have like a two to 4%. And right now it might even beat the market (laughs) where we are right now. What you're sharing is, is this is a totally different model. So we actually don't want a really high exactly. return percent because if we did have a huge profit percent that means we're gouging on rents our tenants exactly which is the whole purpose is to provide stable long-term residents and business locations so in a way really big profits would be a failure on that model and so then it, it then underlines the the real value is community self-determination exactly yeah you nailed it and, and longevity right we get to live here. We don't get displaced. Exactly. And we get to decide what, what goes here. One of the things I loved about the CIT model, the Mercy Corps, was like some of the businesses they put in, right? Like I can't remember everything, but I think they, didn't they put in like a laundry or something, mm-hmm. you know, where so. it's, it's yeah. like, great, it's your place. You get to put in what you want. And if you don't want another coffee shop or bike shop or hipster, whatever, put in the thing that, that you want. And it's like this direct economic democracy that we're missing right totally but even that like you know it takes a fundamental like restructuring of just how people think and come together right because for a lot of them like i was saying i don't fault them for this but they were like well how come when it's our turn to be investors we're not getting to make the same level it's the same question we get around the land trust right how come when it's our turn we don't get to turn around and then sell it for the highest dollar and it's like well we're trying to prevent perpetuating the cycle of, of extraction that happens in these communities. And so, yeah, but you nailed it. So who else are you watching in the movement? And what else What else are you seeing? Is there any other breakthroughs or, or models or leaders, innovators you're following? Totally. Like we're friends, peers, allies, comrades, all of it with EB Preck in the East Bay Kensington Corridor Trust. We're looking at the Boston Community Land Trust. I think just like land trusts and stuff across the Bay Area on the residential side and then limited equity cooperatives in New York, for example. Like a lot of this work is retrofuturistic, right? Like there's, (laughs) we're looking at the past to look at the future where land trusts and cooperatives have have existed for a long time. And so borrowing a lot of the sort of like governance models from there, and then applying it to the current context and a local context, where maybe like real estate prices are a lot different today than they than they were even, you know, a few years ago, and bringing in that sort of like investment piece to it as well. So yeah, some of the folks I named or people were looking at, also just really paying attention to the organizing that's happening around tenant rights in general, really inspired by the work of Casey Tenants, the Kansas City tenants. I don't know if you, you've had a chance to follow their work, Sean, but they had this New York Times piece that came out a, a couple months ago that was like something about imagining a future without evictions. It's just really powerful organizing work that they're doing to just 
question the assumptions <laughs> that we all take for granted as as a given and are building this this radical future that you know really treats housing as a as a human right. So anyway, some of that organizing has been really inspiring to me as well. I'm curious to to tie back in you were mentioning your climate work. Like how do you see this being relevant in the the decades to come and we yeah we know, right? This isn't fictional. Climate change is happening. We're going to see a billion or so climate refugees in the next decade or so. How does that tie in? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like when I first started climate work, we were still talking about climate change mitigation. And of course, now we're talking about adaptation and and building, trying to build resiliency in the face of climate destruction. Because like you said, it's here. We're feeling it now. But yeah, the idea is that in in the same spirit of community self-determination that hopefully will emerge from these these models of co-ownership and co-governance, any asset that a neighborhood or zip code needs to meet its needs could be put into this this collective ownership model, right? So if you think about like, I don't know, solar power or uh, yeah, things around food sovereignty, like models around that could be, we're really essentially trying to create this like template that could then be used for any asset. Today, that asset might look like housing and commercial real estate. Tomorrow, it could look like, you know, farms or it could look like, yeah, whatever we need to sort of meet our our future needs in this sort of climate constrained world. Right. So not just solving for, for housing or real estate, but how do you organize a community to self-govern a certain asset? So that's the biggest energy, piece, right? Like people food. always, mm-hmm, exactly. That's the hardest thing, right? Like even with doing all this work, it's it's hard to sort of crack the code on structures and financials and all of that. But like the harder piece is obviously the organizing and getting people who might not see themselves as having shared interests, but actually do and getting them to the table together and make these decisions that are in the interest of the collective versus in the interest of the individual. Like that's the hardest piece of the work, right? And that's the thing that we need the most as our future gets sort of more threatened thanks to the climate crisis. And so, yeah, we look at it through that lens. So what's one question that you don't get asked, but that you wish you did? Yeah, okay. That's a that's a really good question. I'll say that this is a question that I ask people on our podcast, The Road to Repair, but I don't ever get asked it. One of the questions we asked our guests on that podcast is, you're creating a lot of change. Your work involves a lot of social change work. How have you changed in the work? I just love asking people that question because I think a lot of times in this work, we're so we think of ourselves as like solving these big problems outside of us and these systems of oppression outside of us, but also like interrogating the ways the systems of oppression live within us, despite what we might think. It's like, we're all swimming in capitalism. We're all swimming in white supremacy. We've all internalized aspects of this. And how have you changed? And so for me, like how I think I've changed is I've gotten just a a better sense of clarity around like the ways in which I might replicate white supremacy capitalism, for example, in the way I work by always working like too much or too fast or too like taking on too much and moving at a pace that 
might look great to like a funder or investor, but is actually not great to my own <laughs> well-being, to the well-being of our team, to the, you know, just is not at a natural pacing, right? And I think I've obviously become more like self-aware since having kids and, you know, like thinking about just how our work connects to the well-being of our individual selves, of our families, of our communities, of our natural systems. And I think that's been the hardest piece for me. I don't think I've like fully transformed there, if I'm being totally honest. I have to catch myself from not <laughs> like sometimes in our team meetings, we have to just be like, okay, we need to take a beat and see like these deadlines that we've come up with. Are these like true deadlines that we are accountable to community to? Or are we making artificial deadlines and moving at a pace that's just like not sustainable to our well-being. And so I, I'll say that has been a journey still, but I'm very much like actively interrogating that within myself. <laughs> Thanks for that. So are you working less now? Yeah, like I don't work on weekends at all, which is was a thing that I was doing all the time. I do not right. work no, on normal, normal thing. Right. right. Which is crazy. Yeah. I'm I would love for us to eventually get to a four day work week. And I think we're like laying the sort of foundations for that. We're not quite there yet. But yeah, I don't touch work on the weekends. I usually quote unquote clock out by like, sometimes I'll do work at night, just depends on my kid's schedule. But I'll clock out at first at 3.30 to go pick up my kids from school, come home, I'll do a little bit of work, like I said, once they go to bed just to catch up. But I make sure that I'm always like present from the time they're back from daycare that their evening routine and everything. Like I'm there, I'm doing dinner, I'm doing baths, I'm doing all of this stuff. So that's really important to me. Well, I'm glad you're investing in your family and, and yourself in that way, right? Beautiful. And thanks thanks for the question and answering it yeah. yourself. <laughs> what do you need? How could our listeners help? Wow. Uh, I You know, just follow our work and send us good energy. And we have a capital campaign coming out to support some of our pilot projects. I can share that information with you, Sean, when that's live. But yeah, we're going to be raising both like philanthropic, you know, donation capital as well as investment capital for ground cover. So that will be one thing to to follow over the next few months. But yeah, otherwise, just like follow our work and let us know if you're doing something like this in your communities and could use some support. Can you mention the what website or ch channels to follow? We'll also list them in the notes. Yeah, our website is theguild.community. So www.theguild.community. So not .com. People always get thrown off by .community. <laughs> <laughs> our Instagram is, our handle is at guildcommunity. So yeah, those are our two primary channels. On our website, you can sign up for our newsletter. And we send out routine updates in terms of all our projects. So yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nikishka. You're, you're doing really important work, leading the way forward for communities, right, to self-determine their own development and assets into the future. So really appreciate you. Look forward to promoting all your good work. And uh, yeah, thanks thank for being you. with us. Yeah, I appreciate y'all. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.